I'm stunning now. Once I did. That was a very specific reason. So we're all things we're not allowed to do in Judaism. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was my title. About so probably I missed something. That was the Monday day class, and we finished. And I will never, ever, ever talk about that again. What? Until I... The same way I'm never going to talk about free will again until like I forget. It's like childbirth for women. <laughs> the pain eventually fades. Were you that bad? What? Were you that bad? No, you weren't that bad. Doesn't mean it was a painless experience, though. Every little pain threshold. Okay. <laughs> All the things you're not allowed to do in Judaism. So, I want to just start with a basic observation. If you made a list of all of the things that you're supposed to do in Judaism, supposed to, supposed to do, and all the things that you're not allowed to do, yeah, what you would notice is that there's more things you're not allowed to do than things that you're supposed to do. Have you noticed that? More things you're not. Yeah. More things you're not allowed to do. In fact, how many items are on the both lists if you combine them? 613. 613. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many things are you supposed to do? Ah, uh, yeah. 365 not allowed. 365 not allowed, 248 you are allowed to do. There's more things you're not allowed to do, right? But, th- but that's just, it's if you count mitzvahs. And counting mitzvahs is like kind of cheap because like a mitzvah, you know, there's one mitzvah like, you know, rest on Shabbos. And there's another mitzvah like cover the blood of a wild beast or a bird once you've shechted it. I mean, one of those mitzvahs is quite more involved than the other. So counting mitzvahs might not be the best way of doing this. So let's take Shabbos, for example. Um, what are you supposed to do on Shabbos? Because it's Shabbos. How do you, how do you, like, what, what actions are you supposed to actually go do on Shabbos? Nothing. Say good food. What? Say, it's <laughs> Say that it's Shabbos. Rabbinically, they, they, rabbinically, they did a little tweak on that. You're saying Shabbos, yeah. Biblically, on Shabbos, you have to say it's Shabbos. Well, actually, it's not true. You have to say that it's Shabbos and convey in some sense that that's a good thing. Like, say, good Shabbos! And then you're done. So if you don't, then. What do you mean, if you don't? What kind of, what kind of sinner are you? <laughs> like, I understand if you steal, right? Or like, you know, other sins, but like, you can't take your Chavez, like, that's the sin you want to do? I think it's someone, is each individual time? No, nope, just once. Just once. Biblically. Rabbinically, the rabbis, like, add a little more fancy flair to this. They say, well, you can't just say Chavez. You have to, you have to use a certain formal declaration and say all these nice things about Shabbos, how it's connected to the Exodus of Egypt and God chose us and God loves us and we're special and God created the world and you should do it in the format of a blessing and you know, declare it over a cup of wine or have someone do it on your behalf while you're listening to them and then you should do a similar thing at the end of Shabbos to acknowledge Shabbos leaving but yeah, that, that's basically all you have to do for Shabbos what is stuff you're not allowed to do on Shabbos? It's a long list, right? It's a very, very, very long There's list. There's 39 categories of biblically prohibited activities. Yeah? Okay. Now, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, and there's more details, obviously, both what you have to do. I didn't get into that yet. You also have to, like, honor Shabbos and enjoy Shabbos. And there's certain things about that. But even still, 
as you go through Judaism and you really start picking apart whatever level of analysis you're going to use, you will always find that if you are being honest, there's much more things that you're not allowed to do than stuff that you're proactively supposed to go do. Which means that Judaism is, is more religion of do not than it is of what you're supposed to do. Right. Now, if you are fine being told how to live your life, then this is not a problem. What if you don't like being told by people what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do? You have a major problem, right? You have a major difficulty. Okay. Now, how should we help people deal with that difficulty? So it's like, I don't want to be told what I can and can't do. I want to be able to do what I want when I want to do it. Like, if you want to tell me that mitzvahs, I have the opportunity to do mitzvahs, that's great. Like, okay, I can make kiddish, I want to make kiddish, I'll, you know, light candles, I want light candles, and I'll do the mitzvahs, you know. But, but if I want to do something, I should be able to go ahead and do it. That's a, that's a unique kind of problem. I mean, there's, there's somebody who might not see any value in Torah mitzvahs at all. That's a different problem. I'm saying someone who, who appreciates, you know, they're like, they're like, they're like you know, making kiddish, like the Shabbos meal. They like lighting candles. They like learning Torah. They like, they like the opportunities to do things that Judaism provides and the growth and spiritual and the blah, 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 blah. But the idea that they can't do the stuff that they want to do when they want to do it really irks them. How can we help them deal with that problem? Not that anyone in this room has that problem, right? Purely theoretical discussion. Right. <laughs> um, how can we help them? <laughs> I commend your honesty. Um, <laughs> there are people in the world who really enjoy participating in all sorts of Torah mitzvah activities. They do not like the fact that the Torah tells them what they can't and can and cannot do. Yeah, that I have. Okay, that's it. How do we ha- how are we supposed to help how are we supposed to help that person? Oh, to help them. Uh, I think um I think uh, what I learned in my not here, yeah, I think you, you need to create a love of Hashem for them. I think uh, I think that's what my not does. So I think this <laughs> is being recorded for the promotional. How can we help them? <laughs> I, <know this. laughs> I think uh, that's uh, uh, and uh, I think that's what my not does. So, in essence, they should come to my note if they have that problem. Yeah, and then uh, they're going to create a love. This is brought to you by Yelper. The next time I'm told that I, I, I do not contribute to the fundraising and the recruitment efforts of my note, I will just point out that um, I play my own little role. Okay. Here's the thing. We believe in myths. Myths are things that sound nice, they're catchy, they're inspiring, it's inspiration class, but they're not true. Like, there's no I in team. It's a myth. There isn't an I. That is correct, but nobody says that as part of their spelling practice. That's right. There's also no we in redemption, right? <laughs> I think that one has more weight, though. What? Like, there's no we in redemption, because then we learn that really it is, like, each individual has to... 
bring the redemption? <laughs> you can make up whatever you want. <laughs> so one time someone asked me, isn't God like this thing? And then they came up with something. I said, well, I mean, isn't anything like anything in some sense and not like it in some other sense? I mean, that's, that's a really useless question. <laughs> like, like, make it open-ended like that. Okay. Um, so one of the myths that we would like to believe is that when you love, love is a motivation to get you to behave properly. That if you love, then you're going to be, you know, like, like if you love somebody, you wouldn't hurt them, right? Who are you to tell me how to behave properly? <laughs> I'm a rabbi. I have a certificate that says I have been ordained as a master of the path and how to serve the creator of the universe. It was a running joke of Ashkenazis and Sephardi truth. The rabbi is Ashkenazi. He's like, yeah, what is he? He's the rabbi. And Sephardi were like, oh, my rabbi, he's so great. I have a certificate that says I'm a master of how to live your life in the service of God. I mean, so, you know. You have a certificate that says you're an engineer. Everybody, you know. Not yet. Not yet. Hopefully, you will at some point. You also have a certificate that you're a prophet. No, I, oh, I do, actually. That is correct. I'm a therapist. All right. Are you a therapist? No. So how'd you get a certificate? You know, how, you know how there's a scandal of people getting false diplomas? Yeah, like in the college scandal. That too comes from my photo. Right. I want a fake one. It's not fake. Your, Come on. <laughs> okay, moving on. So that's what qualifies me to tell you what's right and wrong. Anyway. Um, no, but in all seriousness, there's, there's a myth that if you love, then you're not going to, you're going to always behave. If you love someone, you would never hurt them. Oh, wait, I know what you mean. We have today? Oh, yes, today. Fear. Fear, that's right. Fear. Fear is very important. To a degree. <laughs> no, no, no. That was the fundamental, and then love is like... To do more. Yeah, that's the thing. It's you fear, but to a degree. Like, if you're doing things... No, you can fear a lot. I think I'm just going to, like, not probably give you a class. <laughs> I, I, he didn't say there was a limit. There isn't, actually. There is not? No. If fear and in love, not. Both not. No, but there's less limits in fear. There's no limits, but there's less limits in fear. It's like... You know, everyone's created equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, what needs to happen. Also. You've heard of Rabbi Kiva's disciples? We're not going to have a long discussion. I'm just using them as a point to, to illustrate, and we're going to move on. Did they love each other? Yeah. Yes. yes. Did they hurt each other? Yeah. yeah. So what do we see from this? Love is painful. <laughs> love does not prevent you from misbehaving. We'll talk about that after. <laughs> Okay. Why is it that when your parents disagree with your life choices, they can't simply say, well, reasonable people can disagree about things and move on? Because they love you. That's right. And that's why they continuously berate you for the choices they think are wrong, even though it's causing strain in the relationship and not accomplishing anything. Love, like everything else, has its advantages and disadvantages. And one of the disadvantages of love is it does not create inhibition. It doesn't create a sense of I should not do something. It creates a sense of I should do something. Which is why in Tanya it says that the source, the root of all of the positive mitzvahs is but the source and root of all the negative mitzvahs is fear. fear. And there's more negative mitzvahs than 
positive mitzvahs. The negatives permeate our lives on a constant basis. Right? It's never okay to sin ever. Why are there 365 negative mitzvahs? 365 days. That's right, because each mitzvah is telling you don't sin on any day of the year. Why are there 248 positive mitzvahs? And each mitzvah, each limb, each mitzvah is telling you use a, do a, do a mitzvah with one of your limbs. What's the difference in a limb and a day? Three hundred sixty-five days means everything, right? Because everything that happens happens in that day, and then that's the whole life. But a limb, a limb is by definition one limited aspect of life. So even if you have two hundred forty-eight limbs, each one is doing something different in the sense that what your arm is doing is is only tangentially related to what your legs are doing. Positive mitzvahs, or Judaism that comes from our love, is always going to be limited as to what I'm motivated to do and is there the opportunity to do it. Whereas Judaism motivated by fear, that's an ongoing thing because everything that's forbidden is always forbidden, all the time. So, we're going to talk a little bit about fear and cultivating fear and what's fear. It's one of those things that the promotional advertisement of my note sometimes gets neglected. <laughs> it's a lot of emphasis on love. Okay. Fine. Ad. What? Our next ad will focus on that. My note, where the fear of God is placed in you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the Alter Rebbe said that had he not included the word truth and that you have to like, serve God with truth, that's a paraphrase, not actually what it says, um, then he would have had tens of thousands more chassidim. But he, he, needed, you know, he doesn't compromise. Yeah. You have to learn about the fear of God. Okay, yeah. What? Okay. So have you learned about the fear of God? Someone mentioned that you had to have some fear, but yeah, not too just, much fear. we just learned about it uh, with uh, Rabbi Shapiro. Okay. We learned um, in uh, chapter 14 and 16 of Tanya. 14 and 16 of Tanya. Those are good chapters. Second. I mean, like, what? Pieces of... No, first. Okay. So, how many kinds of fear are mentioned in Chassidus? Does anyone know? Five. Very good. And almost correct, but not actually correct, but possibly correct. Depends on how you think about it. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. Is it like the matzah that's broken into five pieces? Six, maybe five. And I'll explain to you why. There's something called the fear of punishment. It is mentioned occasionally in Chassidus. I know of two places um, two places in, in Chassidus from the Chabad Rebbe's where fear of punishment is mentioned there might be one or two others that I don't know about um, and a few writings of some of the Chassidim where it's mentioned so there's this thing called fear of punishment if you count fear of punishment then there's six if you don't count fear of punishment which is usually we don't count fear of punishment then you're correct in saying that there are five so the first thing I want to talk about is why we usually don't count fear of punishment as in why I'm correct. Why you're actually correct. <laughs> That's why there's a hemming and hawing, and you're right, but you're not right, but you might be right. Depends on how you count it, right? 
All right. So, there is a trend, which is that when things are superficially similar, we assume that they're fundamentally the same. Like, monkeys and people are superficially similar, and so there are people in the world that think that they're fundamentally the same, because they have superficial similarities. Whenever um, Judaism wants to describe the fatal error of taking superficial similarities and transferring them into a, the idea that they're funda- two things are fundamentally the same, they always use the example of like a monkey compared to a person. Because monkeys are superficial like people, but they're fundamentally different. And so it actually says in some writings of some of the chassidim that fear of punishment compared to the fear that chassidim speaks about is like a monkey compared to a person. It is only superficially similar, but it is substantially in its essence different. Okay. What is fear of punishment? What is fear of punishment? Scared to be punished. Scared to be punished. Then, like doing, like avoiding certain things because of how you're being treated. Okay. So you're good, except you're talking about behavior, and I want to talk about feelings, because fear is a feeling. It's the feeling of being inhibited, which then causes you not to do things, right? Because you are concerned about how you will suffer as a result of whatever the thing is, okay? You will experience pain as a result. So if I do this, I will have pain. And that realization creates an inhibition in the person, okay? I think we're all familiar with this. Have you ever like thought about asking a question and then didn't ask because I was teaching the class? No. Okay. But you can imagine such a thing happening to a person. That would be an example of fear of punishment. Is that? No, I'm working on it so that the class is uh, engaging as my own particular brand of cynicism while at the same time people feel comfortable voicing their opinion. Does that mean we'll be punished for asking questions? No. <laughs> But I might be quite abrasive. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's, 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 like chili, it's, like, it's like chili. It should be spicy, but still bearable. Yeah. All right. New. I'm pretty good. business card with that. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but anytime, it doesn't matter what, the, the fact is that I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be in pain. And the realization that this action, this event, will ultimately, in my estimation, lead to my pain and suffering, cause me to be inhibited, and I feel like I can't do it, or, I, or even if I do it, I have to force myself to do it. That sense, that is called fear of punishment. Um, Chassidus says that the only thing worse than fear of punishment, it's like really bad. Fear of punishment is evil. It's klipa. It's, it's a bad thing. The only thing worse than fear of punishment is? Not fearing at all. Sinning. It's like chemotherapy. What's the only thing worse than chemotherapy? When you need chemotherapy, God forbid, and then it doesn't work or you don't have any, right? But all things being equal, we would prefer to avoid the situations where that's even under discussion, right? And the reason for this is that fear of punishment, well, it has this quality of inhibiting, of, of making yourself withdraw into yourself to be smaller. You're preoccupied entirely with your own self. It's what Chassidus calls yeshus, being self-absorbed. Fear of punishment is an act of self-absorption. 
Yeah, the one or two times okay. that it actually talks okay. about it. When Chassidus speaks about fear or yira, as the Hebrew goes, it is always talking about something in Kedusha, in holiness. And all holiness is about connection. The opposite of holiness is being self-absorbed. So fear of punishment is not holy. Fear of punishment is klipa. Fear of punishment is evil. It's just not the worst form of evil. The worst form of evil is actually sinning. So if your choice is fear of punishment or, I don't know, eating a cheeseburger, then better to have fear of punishment not eat the cheeseburger. But Chassidus is not interested in the bare minimum. Chassidus is interested in growing, right? And coming closer to Hashem. So we want to talk about fear in the context of Kedusha, a fear which brings us closer to God, not a fear which simply is a last resort to avoid sinning. And that's why Chassidus normally doesn't include fear of punishment because there's nothing holy about it. There are five kinds of true fear, true yira, true ways of experiencing inhibition as a way of connecting to Hashem. All right, now we're going to move on to the five kinds of fear. First, a word about fear. The word. Why do I keep using the word fear? Awe, right? Isn't that what they do in the, like, the, the feel-good articles? There's no I in team, and it's awe of God, not fear of God. Right? No, that's yeah. That's not respect. We also use respect. The respect of God. But you're right. That's right. The problem with the word yira is, is that yira does not have a single one word translation in English. Now, this is not, this isn't, Ava actually does. Ava can translate as love. And, and love is a flexible enough word in English that you can say everything that is trying to be conveyed and captured by the Hebrew word Ava, you can put into the English word love as long as you're, you know, Right? When we have concepts like romantic love and paternal love, and we use love in a borrowed sense, like, I love this pizza, right? And, and you can have, do all those things with the Hebrew word ava, and it more or less is fine. Yira, on the other hand, is a very broad word, like love is in English, the way it's understood in Hebrew, and specifically how it's used in Chassidus, but there is no one English word to my knowledge that actually is broad enough to cover all the different kinds of things included in Yira. So, does year contain fear? Yes. Does year contain awe? Yes. Does year contain respect? Yes. Does year contain subservience? Yes. Does year contain humility? Yes. And go on and on, right? The problem is, if I mean, if, and if my guys might be better at English than I am, and might come up with one word that that is general enough that captures a sense of what unifies all those things, and then that will be the translation for year. But since there isn't, how do you write year in Hebrew? Yud, Resh, Aleph, Hey. Since there isn't, to my knowledge, and in most basic contexts, the word Yira, like if, you, if you take it, um, fear does work, that has become the standard translation, so we're going to go with fear. If we're going to speak in English. Okay? Because saying awe is actually going to be more misleading. Pachad is actually more dread. So it's like more negative. Not necessarily. But there's a difference. So I think people avoid the word fear just because it feels so negative that it's like, but, I don't but, want to be involved but, in but that but whatsoever. There are, but there are elements of Yira which really are fear, and the more basic ones are that. And you can't even get to the awe one before you get to the fear one. And that's why... There's no good one English word that captures all of them, but fear is a good way to, if you have to pick one word, it, it's, 
and you want to be more at if you want to be more accurate that's better than saying all oh, which is really just you know tailoring it to people's emotional comfort zone and what's wrong with respect let's say because it's a very limited version of Yira okay yeah if you speak Hebrew do you would you like understand Yira for it's like actual name itself like we understand Ahava is love and like as I speak English it's like I understand different aspects of love but like if you're translating if you're only keeping Yira in the Hebrew form have you, you understand uh, have you read Shakespeare yeah do you understand it? No. Do you speak English? Yeah. Why didn't you understand it? It's a different form of English. There you go. You can understand it. But I feel like... Not Shakespeare. It's like... Yeah. I, I mean, like the word fear contains, like, a lot of the time. <laughs> when you fear someone, you, it's because you, like, respect them. Like, yeah. Like, I'm going go like, like like to go with the word... I'm going to go with the word... I'm going to go with the word fear because it's the only English word that I feel is broad enough that maybe can approximate what we're talking about. Get the other ones. They're just way too specific. And then it's like... If, if there's a better word, I'm up with the hearing it, but I have net to hear a better word. And when the standard translations were done, the Rebbe saw them that that fear was the word that was used, and so we're going to go with that. And it, it carries more of what's included in year than any of the other words that I've ever heard. So it's not it's not wrong to say that there is a form of year which is respect, yeah. or can manifest as respect. But it is wrong to translate year as respect because it, it won't work in an overall majority of contexts. Would trepidation and work? No, they're also too limited. Oh. Let's go through them. Okay. So we're going to start at level two. There's five. We're going to start at level two. Are we going to start at level two? Everything always starts at two. <laughs> That's good, but no. Because level two is the easiest to understand. Hardest to do? No, it's actually not the hardest to do. It's the second hardest to do. These are... These are, these are, are some, <laughs> Yeah. As a general rule, oh, let me put it. These one, the, 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 the higher the level, the harder it is to do if you're going to do it in a stable way. I mean, you can, you can have momentary experiences of anything, but that counts for nothing. Like, it's like light bulbs versus, uh, versus um, fireworks, right? Fireworks create a lot of light and are basically useless. Light bulbs, they're stable. We like them, right? They're fun. They are. They just serve a different function. Yes. To bring joy in people's lives when there's a lot of monotony. Fine. Whatever. Yes. Light bulbs are better. If the choice is between fireworks and light bulbs, I'm taking light bulbs every time. Every, I mean, yeah. which light bulbs? Yeah. Fireworks are loud. What kind okay. of light bulbs? Fluorescent. Okay. The ones that give light. These ones. These ones right here. The one that's not working. Working light bulbs. Okay. So we're going to start with level two simply because I think it's the easiest to describe. Then we're going to go backwards to one, and then we're going to move upwards to three, four. We might do three and four together, depending on how time allots, because they're very similar. And then we'll move to five. Five is wild. It's like mind-blowing. I mean that in a literal sense. <laughs> like if you have it, it will blow your mind. So we should walk out of the room before you... No, because I'm going to describe it. <laughs> Describing something won't blow your mind. It's like it's like if I, it's like if, I, if a bomb is explosive, that's really dangerous. Describing an explosive bomb is perfectly safe. Okay, okay. So the first, I'm going to give you the Hebrew, and then I'm going to translate them. The first one is called Yiras Chet in Hebrew. It's called Yir. This is actually the second, but we're going to start with this one. Yiras Chet, which we're going to translate as fear of sin. 
fear of sin. Ches, Tetz, Aleph. Yes. I think so. No. no. <laughs> there is a word chita. That means wheat. And it's with a hay at the end. Wheat? You rock it if you would pronounce wheat. it as chita. But Just. it's chait. Wheat. No, like wheat. 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 Like the thing you make challah out of. Like wheat, flour, challah. I was walking by. I was walking by some of the bachrim, and they were learning Gemara, and they were talking about being stoned. I don't remember, but which is They were talking about being stoned and whether you have to pay when you're stoned. Uh, well, if you cause damages and commit a capital crime at the same time, and you're being stoned for the capital crime, do you also have to pay? Right. Right. That's what was funny is that if you didn't know the context, the whole conversation could have been something else. Anyway. More advertising for Mayano. Okay. Yiras hate, fear of punishment. Not fear of punishment. Sorry, fear of sin. Okay. Okay. Um. What is a sin? What is a sin? What makes something a sin? <laughs> something they were not meant to do. No. That's way too self centered. No, that's like way too generic. It doesn't mean anything. Something God said we shouldn't do. Doing no, something no, against no. Hashem. God said we shouldn't do it because it's a sin. It's negative. Doing something that doesn't make our relationship. Someone said something. Someone said something. Something negative? No, no, no. You said Doing yeah. something Hashem doesn't like. Close, you're on the right track. Something that's going to bring us closer to Hashem. Something that goes against the will of Hashem. Something that goes against Him. If we want to put this in like, you know, emotionally charged language, something that hurts Him. That hurts Hashem. That hurts what? <laughs> I stuttered. It hurts Hashem. It hurts her. Okay. Now, why would you be afraid to hurt somebody? If you're really? Mm-hmm. Really? I want you to think about that for a second. Two things. Are there people in the world you don't love? Yeah. Do you have no compunction about hurting them? You feel no inhibition? No, no. So I just want to point out that if that's your reason, I'm going to stay away from you. <laughs> Number two. Do you hurt your wife? No, you love her. One second. Number two. What was the myth we started at the beginning of the class with? That love, no love doesn't create inhibitions. So love actually doesn't really cause you to... It doesn't really work that way. In fact, the people you're most likely to hurt are the people you love. I thought it was the opposite. I thought the fear can only get you so far. It's actually like unsustainable. That's what we learned yesterday. It depends what you mean by fear. There's different kinds of fear. What? We're going to get what we're going to get. Yeah, like... Like, you saying that, like, a couple can't survive on just not yeah. cheating on each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. Like, that was the fear's representing you, like, relationship. Like, like, doing what you're supposed to do. And then, like, inside is love. Yeah. Yes, that's true. There's more to it. But the baseline is that connection, that there's that connection, which is a positive thing. Like, love, you could say, we're connected. And then, yeah, you could put in the fear stuff, but the baseline would be that. Even when it's another human being, wouldn't it be because you're a human being, so on some level, I love you. Yeah, see, the problem is now you're sticking the word love where it doesn't belong. It's not love. It's not love. That's not, that's not love. That's not love. 
That's not love. I might dislike you, actually. Somebody has to have a certain worth in your eyes. You have to have a certain value for them. I can value you and really not want to spend time with you. I can value you and want to stay away from you. I can value you and wish that you weren't part of my life. Those are all Even, possible. That doesn't really what? make sense. What? Anyone you value, I feel like you want to, like yeah. if I value someone, I care about them, right? So, so I want to spend time with them. I want what? to see them more often. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? So this is, this is, this is the key thing. There's a va- there's the fact that you're recognizing that they have value and that's one kind of value. There's another kind of that I value you, my, the way you feature in my life. Those are two very okay. different things. Yeah. Meaning like you're a human being, so you have value. I don't like you, though. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like a doctor treating a patient, <laughs> right? Are they afraid of hurting the patient? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Does that mean they like the patient? No. Sometimes. Yes. But it doesn't, it, does, it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? So when you recognize that somebody has some kind of intrinsic worth, okay, and you are not messed up, Right, so let's assume you're normal. And when you recognize the intrinsic worth in someone else, not the value that they have subjectively to you, but the intrinsic worth in them, the more you have a sense of that, the more inhibited you are in hurting them. By the way, the reverse is true. The more you have a subjective sense of the value they have in your life, the more comfortable you are hurting them, actually. Because you get used to them. Why would you be more comfortable hurting somebody the more you value them for the way they feature in your life? Because you know that won't disturb the... Right, because your connection to them is so powerful, you project your own tolerance onto them. That's what ends up happening. Is that like family? That's like family. It's like family. That's why, for instance, Aaron was someone who loved God tremendously. And it says that Aaron did exactly as God commanded. It's a few times. In this. And it's a weird thing. And, and Rashi says, this tells us the great praise that Aaron didn't change a single thing. <laughs> What's the big deal? It was a big side. He loved God. When you, when you feel, when you really value someone's, your, your connection with them and the place that they have in your life, you actually become a lot more, um, I don't know, what's the right word? Um, tolerant of causing them pain, causing them hurt, because you, it causes you to, 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 to see them as an extension of you and the same tolerance you extend to yourself you extend to your relationship with them on the other hand what if you see that they have some kind of intrinsic worth independent of you okay. so I was giving a class to the men about marriage today and one of the things that I was telling them is that before you marry somebody it's very important that you see them as an admirable human being independent of whether or not you have a relationship with them what is it that causes a spouse not to hurt the other spouse? What is it, what is it that causes a spouse to actually be careful not to hurt their spouse? Really? And not, and, and to really be sensitive to that? Fear that they lose them? Mm, see, if they they lose them, then that goes into fear of punishment. And then what ends up happening there is that they start figuring out what areas are the border and then they start skirting around that border. That's what ends up happening. You see this with kids all the time. You see anybody when you're when you fear of pun the problem with fear of punishment is that you figure out what where's the line in your estimation, you walk right up to it. That's why cheating is like a bad example for fear in a relationship. Because that's basically saying like I'm av- I'm avoiding crossing a red line. 
But like I don't mind hurting a person. What kind of, but if you feel this is a person, this person has an intrinsic value. This person is not is not should not be just disregarded. And if my actions are going to cause them pain, what gives my the, my actions have no legitimacy because it hurts them. And this idea of putting the focus on what happens to them and making myself secondary, that is the essence of Yira. When I am the focus of what's going on, I'm the locus, I'm what's, we're extending for me outwards, that's love. I'm afraid of hurting you, why? Not because of what you mean to me, because of who what you actually are. Why, what, why do my actions give the right to hurt you? Who, who, who made me so important that all of a sudden my convenience overrides your suffering? And when you sense the, 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 the value and the nobility in someone else's being, then you're uncomfortable hurting them. And that's nothing to do with love. So would it be correct to say that love starts with me and Yura starts with you? That's right. And that's what we're going to see is all the kinds of Yura are all starting with a sense of you. And that's why the year takes you further. And all love starts with me? That's right. Why do I love my children? Because they're mine. That's right. Why, if they make life choices that I would disagree with very heavily, I can't just like say, well, we, reasonable people can disagree. I do in class all the time. Why can't I do it with my kids? Well, are they even old enough yet? <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm dreading when it's going to happen because right. that ends up happening. <laughs> Why won't I be able to? So, if the realization that you eating a cheeseburger, let me use that as the classic example for a sin right now, is that it's going to hurt God, is if that, if your sense of God as being a real being and this going against him is a real. That's the real wrongness of that. When that's powerful enough to inhibit your desire to eat the cheeseburger, such that the fact that you want to eat the cheeseburger is no longer relevant because of who you're going to hurt by eating it, that's called yiras My desire or my action? Desire. 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 It inhibits your desire, which means you feel the desire, the realization of who you're going to hurt. You, you probably have had this with people. Like sometimes... And this is the lowest part of the earth? No, it's the second lowest. Right. This now. What, what, what? This is not a topic. This is something that every person has to have. But the thing is, this is situational. In other words, when does this kind? When do you experience this kind of era? When you're tempted to hurt. Right. Is, if you're walking around, like, I might be hurting God. I might be hurting God. Then you're paranoid, right? That's not like I might be hurting you. Like let go. Like. <laughs> But on the other hand, when I feel the urge to do something and I'm aware that it's going to hurt someone else and that realization that it's going to hurt someone else doesn't not just inhibit my action, but doesn't inhibit that desire, it doesn't allow me to let go of that desire, that means I'm really wrapped up in myself. I'm really unaware of the other being and how significant they are. So is anybody asking you to walk around feeling, I might be hurting God, I might be hurting God? No. But when you feel the desire to do something that you know full well is going to hurt God, what? Meaning it comes after the desire. It's not a pre kind of always. Right. 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 
I really feel as I eat the cheeseburger and I recognize that not that it's wrong, I'm going to hurt God. Is my sense of God and the intrinsic value in his being and how he's really there and he's really seeing it and it's really hurting him, is that, is that something that's real enough to me that gets me out of being wrapped up in myself? And that's called Yerushchait. By the way, if you have that with people, you have good relationships, you can have good relationships with them. And that should precede loving them. Especially in marriage, by the way. Yeah. And how do you know the Hashem gas about... He told you. Yeah, what do you There's this book called the Chumash. It's the Chumash. Yeah. I've told you before to read the whole Chumash, right? Um, let's see, let me just call the. Or did the author have a, like, come up with it? No, the author explains it. It's in Chumash, it's in the Nevi'im. I mean, just read the read the Chumash, read the Tanakh, you want a, a Pasuk. Um, I just want to know for sure if, it's, if that's true, because for me, this would not be enough, actually. Well, it's not enough for me either. I mean, where's the people? What? Yeah, but maybe uh, it's not enough. Like, okay, I know that Hashem doesn't like me to do this. It's not going to be enough for me to like. If I really want to do it, to stop it. Right. It's not enough for most of us either. And the reason is because this is the, what separates year from Avon. Year requires having a sense of God. Love requires having a sense of how much I love God. How much God is important to me. Right. And this is what makes year more important and also more difficult is when I recognize the God's presence in my life and how that's good I cultivate love I know, I know what you mean and I'll get it I have the same problem it's not like every time I know I'm about to do something I feel desires in the room I'm like oh, this would hurt God I can't <laughs> exactly. do it I, that's something you have to work on it's, you know, some people are naturally born with that kind of sensitivity but most of us have to work on it I don't have it but then to have that with all things, even when you really, really want to do something different. Yeah, then I would have. It right. depends. Yeah. It just depends. Yes. Could this also be that you don't want to do something because you know your relationship with God? Like it'll bring you further away from God. You can mix your eschet into your love of Hashem. That's true, but you don't want to make it dependent. Think about it like this, yeah? Go back to things. If your unwillingness, your inhibition to hurt somebody depends on how much you want to have a relationship with them, what does that make you? What kind of person are you? Narcissistic. Yeah, like, like I never hurt my friends. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I guess I better stay your friend, because otherwise, like, like, those are like, those are dangerous people, right? So it's not wrong to say that there should be an element of Yerushchid incorporated into love, for sure. But you don't want to make it rest on that. That's like, maybe like, a, a, sometimes, sometimes as you're growing, it happens that way. But like, if you're going to sit down and I'm going to work on things, the normal progression is you first have to have a basic level of Yerushchid and then you progress to love. First, like, imagine, imagine you're dating a guy and, the guy and the guy says, I would never hurt you because you're my wife. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you would continue. No, right? Like, like, where is your decency? Like, why would you not hurt me because you recognize I'm a human being that has some intrinsic worth? Why not? Why not that? All the more so with God, whose being is much more intrinsically important. 
and who's capable of suffering much more than people for reasons I'm not going to get into right now. How can that be without love? Meaning, how can you see that and then like, not completely follow the kid of yours? Meaning, like, because my question's like not one, but like, <laughs> how can, like, to me it's like, like Okay, so you have fear, meaning you don't, you won't hurt. How does that not come straight away, Katie? And I used to love him. That depends on the individual. How how much love and fear reinforce each other, how much they pull in different directions, the prisoners work hard to maintain both, is a complete individual. So I don't want to, I don't want to like set anything down in, in stone about that. And Tanya Lalta says it all depends on, on the unique character of the person and how they perceive God and their reality. What I want to make clear is that at the end of the day, a person does need to have fear of God that they cultivate and they can maintain independent of love. Now, maybe for them that's very easy. Maybe for them that's very difficult. Maybe when they do that, it automatically spills back into love and the love reinforces the fear and it's a wonderful, virtuous cycle. That's great. But what you do not want is to say that, that the fear is only going to be an outgrowth of the love. That is frankly dangerous dangerous in a relationship with a person and it's certainly dangerous in a relationship with God but if they're mutually reinforcing each other that's fine that's great that's I can not love someone and still like not hurt them meaning I can still not hurt my friends but not care about the other person I don't care about you I'm not going to hurt you but I don't care about you yeah but the question is how yeah, but, but you're not going to hurt them in the most crass way you're not going to you're not going to murder them yeah you make no, a snap. You make a snap. What happens when you really? When you, what happens? I'm not you personally because I don't want to start getting debate about what you would wouldn't do. But people will often feel very comfortable making a remark which makes another person look stupid. Not for the purposes of educating, not for the purposes of trying to achieve something, but simply because the other person isn't important enough that the pain that they experience should inhibit the joy they and their friends get out of making that clever remark. Right? You don't have to be a cruel person for that, even though that's an act, right? Okay, so, you know, you, so you're not going to go into a church and you're not going to eat pig on Yom Kippur. Great. But there's a lot of sins out there, a lot of things that can hurt God. And cultivating that, that's, so that's Yeres Chet. Okay? And that Yeres Chet comes from recognizing that God is actually real, God is actually here, God is actually aware of what's happening, He's actually affected by that. The same way developing that inhibition relative to another person recognizes that this person actually is a person. They have intrinsic value. They are here. What you're doing affects them. And that creates a certain image. I don't want to do things that are going to like make that person pained or discomfort blithely just like because I'm more important than them. It's just not true. Certainly when you're talking about you versus God, God is infinitely more important than you. Right. That's the second level. What's the first level? So, that first level, what does, it, what does it feel like? It feels like there's this, this actual, literal fear or in a feeling of inhibition. I can't do something that's going to cause pain to someone else because I recognize vividly, clearly how real they are. And that causes me to take what I want to do just less seriously. Okay. Now we're going to move to the first level. The first level is called Kabbalah's O Malchus Shemaim, accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, have you spoken? Ah. <laughs> She'll write it down. <laughs> okay. 
accepting the yoke? The yoke of the kingdom of heaven, known as Kabbalah Sol, or accepting the yoke for short. We are compared to oxen plowing the field. But that analogy is in the context of where Kabbalah Sol shows up in the positive mitzvahs. So, so um, Kabbalah Sol shows up in the context of positive mitzvahs as well, and then you need the analogy of the oxen. So people might be familiar with chapter 41 of Tanya where it discusses this, but that's talking about the role that Kabbalah Sol plays in positive mitzvahs. I just want to talk about it in general, specifically, as it's a level of fear. So I don't know if I'm going to touch on that. Okay. Let's think about the following situation. You are a nurse. Okay? You are sitting and having your Shabbos meal. Yeah? Your children are delightfully telling you what they learned about the Parsha. You're enjoying the soup. Yeah. Sounds like it's coming from personal experience. I'm not a nurse. <laughs> is your wife a nurse? What? Is your wife a nurse? No, my wife is an English teacher. We both have jobs that include summer vacation. <laughs> wise people plan ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, and... All of a sudden, as you're having this delightful experience, um, there's a knock on the door, and your kid runs and opens it, and someone says that someone on the street just collapsed. What do you do? Get up and run to help. Why? Because it's your instinctive. It's your your what? It's your responsibility. Ah, it's your responsibility. So, a minute before, you were feeling very responsible for this person. You're like sitting there with your soup and listening like, I am responsible for this random stranger who I don't even know about. Did you feel any responsibility right before that person knocked? No. No. You're not in your periphery of existence yet. So, so what was going on? How all of a sudden you become responsible? Because they can't help themselves. Isn't there actually a law that says like if you see That's another man fallen over somewhere, you like have to help Yes. But I don't want to bring a legal example because, unfortunately, not everyone observes the law. I'm trying to bring an experiential example. It's your instinct to get up and run. Here's the thing. What does responsibility feel like? It doesn't feel like anything until you're called upon to act. That's why I'm using this example. Right? In other words, the, the sense of responsibility didn't show up the minute that the person knocks on the door and tells you that someone's collapsed on the street, right? Mm-hmm. The responsibility is there from your identifying yourself as a nurse, training, whatever. whatever. There's a whole way you, you built a certain attitude and relationship that's now embedded in your psyche. You're not experiencing anything. It's just there. It's like if you want to think about a physical example, it's like fragility. What's fragility? Doesn't mean that something is fragile. Easily breakable. It means if you try and break it, it'll easily break. And if nobody tries to break it, will you ever know that it's fragile? No. No? How? It depends on the object. Well, that's that's making assumptions. (laughs) That's making assumptions that it what you. I mean, 
if the only kinds of glass that you know is really fragile glass, you see the glass and you assume the same thing, right? But once, if, if you, once you know a little bit of material sciences, you can make something that looks fragile, which isn't, or vice versa. It doesn't have to be. You're making assumptions. Like, the only way to really know it's fragile is to make it, right? So there are properties that are not manifest unless something happens. And there are many properties, like, say, color and heat, where you can, like, experience the color and heat in the object, right? You can touch it, it's hot. You can see it, it's blue, right? You can't, you can't experience the fragileness unless the fragileness actually is fully actualized by a thing being broken. Responsibility, or this kind of responsibility, is that kind of thing. How do you know whether a person has that? There are a few other things that are like this, by the way. Responsibility, courage is like this. How do you know if someone is courageous? You don't, right? It's one of the interesting things about in war and soldiers. And like, it's like, which soldiers are courageous? You don't know until the real bullets start flying. Who's really responsible? You don't know until someone's screaming for help. But that was there all along. It might have been, had to have been cultivated, but it was there. So there is this sense, if you want to say, in the back of your mind, at the bottom of your heart, that you will act when called upon. You will, you'll show up when you're needed. But you're not walking around with that inside you, thinking about it all the time. And what is this... Uh I will do that. I will do that. If a person has cultivated an identity that I am here to serve God, why do I exist? Why do I exist? Why am I here? For whose benefit? For God's. If that becomes ingrained into your self-conception, you don't walk around feeling anything. You don't walk around telling yourself that. But what happens the minute you know that something violates God's plan? That in and of itself just automatically means it's off limits. What if you know something is necessary for God's plan to unfold? Then you jump into action. There's this level of having this sense of responsibility towards God, which doesn't mean like you're walking around feeling like, oh, I'm responsible to God. I, I have to care what God wants. It means that certain things are just clearly off limits. Certain things, if they, situations they would cause you to jump into action. You're not walking around feeling anxious and nervous. But God has a hold on you. And so when you walk down the street and there's a McDonald's, it's just very clear that, that, that is, that's off limits. Yeah? And when it's time to light Shabbos candles, it's like you drop everything and you light Shabbos candles. Not because you're forcing yourself to do so, because you feel the call of duty, you feel that responsibility. And cultivating that sense of, of your place in reality, that's the first level of fear. The way, our, the, the, way, the, way the, um, the way our sages put it, that I was created to serve God. That's what I'm here for. That's what, that's what boot camp is supposed to do to soldiers. You walk into boot camp and your life is, revolves around yourself. You walk out of boot camp, your unit. life revolves around the unit and the mission. Do you feel any different in a moment to moment? No. But as the situation demands you to do and not do different things, you're quick to respond, right? That's, that's actually how you know if somebody, if somebody has to force themselves to do what they're supposed to do and not do what they're supposed to do, it means they're lacking in that. 
one of the signs that a person has cultivated this is that they have alacrity, they spring into action. And that they have a very easy time not being led astray because it's very clear to them this, has, this is compromises my mission. And that is something that a person can live with 24-7 because it's not like a vivid, powerful, intense experience. It's just a background notion, background orientation of who I am and my place in reality. Yir HaSchet, the contrast, is sometimes that's not enough and you're like really struggling. The Yir HaSchet is the thing that like keeps you from sinning even when you really want to sin. Like it's burning inside. But the regular everyday stuff, you're, the, the Kabbalah soul is supposed to take care of. So the, really the first thing is to cultivate the sense there's God and God created me to serve him. Maybe flesh out a little bit who is God and what does mean he created me what does that mean I am blah 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 until that becomes the person's identity. That becomes the person's framework of reality. And then they go on living their life like the person having the soup until they're called upon to act or, they, or it's clearly evident that something is going to compromise their mission and then it's just very clear this is right, this is wrong this is, this is what has to happen, this can't happen and they just avoid what they need to avoid they do what they need to do and move on and that reforming your sense of your place in the larger picture that relative to God and how, and how much God it depends on you for, to fill your mission and blah 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 all of that that's how you cultivate the first level of Yura the second level is cultivating a more v- vivid intense experience of oh my gosh this could hurt him and that's necessary for those cases when the desire to sin is very powerful and overwhelming so those are the first two levels of Yura it seems like the first level is like first because it's also still yeah, there's more of a sense of God in the second. And also the first one is something that is constant. Whereas the second one you know, is less intense. Yeah, it's less intense. Um, there's other reasons why it's first as well, but those are two reasons. Yeah. But in, it, in the um, year of sin, you're also not, like you said, you're not fearing hurting God all the time. Just right, it's situational. But but you actually but 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 it's actually a, a, an emotional experience. The 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 the, the Kabbalah soul is never an emotional experience. It's like passive, and then you spring into action. Passive, you avoid, and then you move on. Like there's no there's not an emotional um, back and forth going on inside the person. It's not a moment. If you're struggling, Kabbalah soul doesn't work. That means the Kabbalah the the level of year called Kabbalah soul has failed. If you're in a place of struggling. If you're feeling tempted, you need your aschet. The Kabbalah soul like stops things from even before that point. There's other things about that, but that's the. So now, if you imagine you've got a person who has a clear sense of like you know what their purpose in life is, and ninety percent of the time that works for them, and when they're really struggling, they're able to have a sense of this could hurt God, and that really inhibits them going forward. Now they can, they're actually treating God seriously. Like their God is a real being. They're trying, and now they can, when they try and love God, God is not just the projection of their spiritual desires. Okay. Now, the next level, this is levels three and four, okay, they are called Yiras Elohim. 
fear of God or fear of the Almighty. They're both called that. There's the there, there are two versions of it. Yes, one is called katnos, which means immature, and one is called godless, which means mature. So there's the immature version and there's the mature version, but they're both generally called yiras elokim, fear of God or fear of the Almighty. Although here, you it is fair and reasonable to substitute the word fear with the word awe. When people say that fear is really awe, they're referring to these two. Okay. Now. Do you remember ever having an experience of having a meeting with somebody who was very important? Not powerful, important. There's a, there's a difference. It's powerful, you should be afraid of what they're going to do to you, and that's what I want to talk about. Just important. Well, you please give an example? It, it depends. It's all subjective. It's all, all subjective. So, for instance, like when I went to the principals, because they're more powerful. Like, oh yeah, that's not true. That's not yeah. true. But no, so you could think of a teacher as very important. Like I've had, I've had meetings with with some of my teachers that that I just thought these were very important, significant people, and they were not that they could were, they were afraid they were going to do something to me. So, when you feel like you're meeting somebody important, um, it gets harder to be more articulate. It's harder to speak, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or you speak too much. Or you speak too much, right? That's a, it, you, right. That's, articulate is a better word. You, you have a harder time being in control of yourself. Your sense that you're in control of yourself kind of dissolves away. So sometimes like, you can't get the words out and sometimes you just keep blabbing and blabbing. But you, that normal sense of self-mastery kind of like doesn't seem to work. Okay. And you know why that is? You're in awe. You're in awe of them. The more you're in awe, the less sense you have mastery over yourself because the sense of you ha- the sense that you have some sort of control just kind of dissolves away the more you're in awe of someone or something. Okay, now, this is... So, when we say, oh, it's like a wonderful experience, well, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a wonderful experience in some sense, but it's kind of actually scary to experience awe. Yeah, most of us like to think that we're above average competent human beings, right? What happens when you experience awe? Yeah, you turn into a pile of jelly. Like, do you really want to experience that? Well, if it's to a person, no, but to Hashem, it's different. Yeah, then that's no good. There's a general rule, which is, if, which is that if you can't value something in between people, you play that with Hashem, that's because with Hashem, it's not real. It's just projection. If you can't value with a person, you yeah, Hashem. Yeah, I can give you a list of things. If you can't value... If you can't value um, submitting to some to another person, I'm not saying to in a particular context, but in general, you don't see there's no goodness in that than submitting to God. And the reason for that is if you can't un, if you can't value something in small little microscopic doses, you don't have a value for it at all. And so what you, everything else is just like it's a fantasy. Like people say, oh, I could I would give my I can give my life for God. Well, okay. That doesn't mean anything to me. Could you give your life for another person? Could you conceive of a situation? If the answer is yes, then saying you give your life to God, that actually means something. 
Otherwise, what you're just saying is that God is whatever self-absorbed projection that you're, you want to make. It's like the farmer who could, was willing to get a you know, million-dollar house. Not, right. Like, not the chickens, because he had chickens, he didn't have a million-dollar house. Exactly. Right. That's why people say, oh, I can pray, I just can't have, I just can't have conversations with people. Like, if you say you can't have conversations with people of one type, but there are other, like, fine, that, that's a great But you can't communicate with another human being that you can actually experience their reaction. Then there's no way that you're actually having that kind of communication with a being you can't directly experience. You're just, like, I don't know, in Lala spiritual land, which is fine. Like, you know, everyone's entitled to live there if they want. But, are we? What? Are we entitled to live there? Not really, but, you know. <laughs> Because it makes people feel good. Right? What? So there's a value in making people feel good? A little bit from time to time. As, as, long, as, as long as it doesn't completely undermine the truth. Plus, I, I think I said it in the kind of tone of voice where it was really clear I did think it was true. Um, anyway. Fine. So now what happens if you meet somebody like that? Kind of fall apart, your little jelly. It's like hard to get the words out. Maybe about the immature, immature. I'm not gonna. The, 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 right now, I'm just generalizing, and then I'm gonna subdivide it if we have time. Okay. What happens if that person then asks you for a favor? You feel like the coolest person. That's right. You have just been made the best person <laughs> in all of existence. You are just like. <sighs> okay, so. How do you test whether you have awe of God? How do you know if you have Yira Silukim? If you have Simcha Shal Mitzvah. If you feel like you are just made of, like given the greatest gift, you're, a, you're on the top of the world because you can go like Shabbos candles, that means that you have Yira Silukim. If you're in awe of God and God asks you to do something for Him, whoa. Okay. That's what Yira Silukim is like. Now, Let's stop and think about this for a second. Can you be in awe of somebody if they're not important enough to prevent you from hurting them? Yes. Yeah. Like, imagine, imagine a person. Like, when you're in their presence, yeah, you fall apart as jelly, right? But you have no problem answering your phone and blowing them off while they're talking. That makes sense? Like, you could, th- th- those two things can't coexist at the same time, right? Like, the level of I wouldn't want to offend you and hurt you is a more basic recognition of someone than a sense of the significance and their importance. Now, as you move away from them, they're not in your, their presence, things get messy, right? And this is why I was saying that it, because God is with us always, right, the idea that God is somewhere else and you can have one of these and the other, that, 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 that's, then it's all in your head. If it's, if it's really directed towards God... All senses of God have to have sense and then sometimes God is here with me. So it's not possible to really have a sense that God is here with me and, and yet and I'm in awe of him that I feel like jelly and I feel thrilled that he's giving me opportunity to mitzvah and at the same time I have no problem blowing him off when I really want to do something he doesn't want me to do. You can't be in that state. That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not a coherent state of mind. So that's Yerosilakim. Now, Here's the question. Why do we feel like jelly? Why do we feel that, get that sense of awe of some people we feel they're important? Why? What makes us feel that certain people are important? 
makes one person more important than another. And don't say one person is not more important than another, because it's not true. Respect and fear. Well, those are consequences. They have more okay. power. Now, okay, power gets you back to punishment. They do things of value. That's right. They do things of value. The more impressive what they do is, the more sense, wow, that's an important person. That's a significant person. Now, obviously, it's much more nuanced, but that's the basic idea. So, and by the way, if you value stupid things, then you think, then you think unimportant people are important. Like, if you value, like, how many Twitter followers somebody has, well, then certain people become very important to you. Right? And that's kind of stupid, because why does that matter? So, what? What? <laughs> There's a theoretical example. I feel attacked. <laughs> really? No, I don't. You're not sure. acting like you feel attacked. I've, I've been in class when students have felt attacked. You are not acting like that. <laughs> I thought we were going to make a Kardashian joke here. Then I, then I feel attacked. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So... If I'm going to have awe of God, it's not enough that I feel like God is real and God is here and God is important and God is counting on me and God can be hurt. I also have to feel that God has accomplished impressive things, right? And the more that I sense that God has really accomplished impressive things, then the more I will be in awe of him, the more I'll feel like jelly in his presence, and the more thrilled I will be at the opportunity to be doing him a favor by doing a mitzvah. Now, What is the, dif- the difference between the, the immature version and the mature version is the immature version is, you're, is that you're impressed by what God has done. The mature version is you're impressed by how he did it. Let's use an analogy. Have you ever seen a beautiful painting? Okay. If you know how to paint... Like, really know how to paint. Not, oh, I could dip my paint to the brush. Or the, like, actually, if you actually know how to paint, then this is not a good analogy for you. Okay? What's impressive about seeing a beautiful painting? The details. Yeah, that's really cool. The picture. Yeah. The meaning behind it. The meaning behind it. It's all very impressive. So we can just, like, take a picture of that and, like, print it out and we're good, right? That's all yeah, but it's not. Oh, that, the, all of that and someone actually made it, right? It's no, this, no, really. I, yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing, right? In other words, if, if you take out the, someone made it, it's, it stops, ha, stops having all of that thing, right? That's the, the, that someone actually did all. Now, if someone just put a bunch of paint randomly on a canvas, someone also did that too, but there's nothing. So it's a combination of what it is and that someone actually, there was someone who actually did it. Okay? So um, one of the things that happens is that sometimes I get very impressed with the rabbi. You know how I get very impressed with the Rebbe sometimes? Like, they're very like, low-level things. It's not like, wow, very impressed with the Rebbe. It's like I learned something the Rebbe wrote. And I understand it, and it's very nice, and it's very interesting, and it's fascinating, and it's deep, and it's profound, and I give a class on it. And then I realized, he made that, he, that from scratch is the wrong word, because he like make it up from scratch, but he didn't learn it from the Sikha, the way I just learned it. Like, he didn't have it written down in a book and then pass it on to someone else, right? Like, well, that's, 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 that's impressive. He actually made it. You don't make a painting the same way you make a, a Torah idea. Those are different processes, but whatever. Okay. Or, 
And I just think of like all the people that the Rebbe spoke to and all the correspondence he did and that he did it. And I think, oh, well, wow, that's, that's impressive because I have a schedule and I have to get stuff done and I barely have to manage what I'm dealing with. So when you realize that somebody actually does, did this thing, that's very impressive. Okay. And what's important here is simply the awareness of two things. That A, what has resulted, and B, there is somebody who did it. It didn't just occur. But what's, what you're lacking is any understanding of the manner in which that goes out. Like, what do you actually need to do in order to create that? That's why I say, you, you can have a very superficial, immature relationship with it. And therefore, the, imp- the, the being impressed it has an immature quality to it. It's, you're blown away. It's not a deep, there's a, it, it, it doesn't have a deep, lasting, penetrating kind of an effect on you because it's something that's, that's really not, you're not familiar with. Like if you're impressed with a painter who painted a beautiful painting, you don't know anything about painting, there's a superficial relationship with the whole thing because you don't know what it means that they made the painting. You're impressed that they did it, but you're basically, you're being impressed is they were able to do something that you couldn't do. That's basically what it boils down to. You have no sense of what they actually did. And when you're, when you're in awe of somebody that they can achieve what you can't achieve, it's a kind of an immature kind of an awe. And, the, and the, 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 it's much more shorter lived. It's a different, it's a much more transitory experience. On the other hand, what if you are an expert painter and you see someone painted a painting and you know that you couldn't paint that painting, and you know why you couldn't paint that painting, and you know that no other painter could paint that painting, and why they couldn't do it, and what the problem is, and nevertheless you understand what this person had to work around and how they did that, and that they uniquely were capable of doing that, it's a totally different kind of awe. And the same thing if you're an expert in any field, if you're an expert in engineering, right? It's very different than if you're not an expert in engineering. Rockets are very cool, right? Yeah. Rocket, right? But being impressed by the Saturn V is different if you know anything about engineering. Yeah. It's a big rocket, boom, right? But if you know anything about it, it's a total, what had to go into that and how does it work? And kind of managing that project, like it's a totally different thing. Yeah, yeah. And the same is true. If you know anything about learning Torah and what goes into developing a Torah insight and realizing that the Rebbe did on the scale that he did and the frequency that he did, it's a different kind of awe. So you're saying like... Um... So like the more knowledgeable you are about the subject versus like understanding it completely, the more you're like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much deeper one. Like versus someone who knows nothing about the subject, they're like, oh wow. Yeah. But like so we can't point. really ever get to the mature. No. Well so we get this is where this is where so the immature one is available to everybody. Because you just look at the world and you're like, God made the world. That's pretty impressive, right? But if you want the mature one, you have to understand the spiritual mechanics of how creation takes place. Some people look at the mountains and are impressed that God made them. Some people think about what does it mean to create something out of nothing and are impressed about how that can happen, mountains aside. Okay? The mature one comes from an understanding of what is the process that God has to engage in in order to create the world and govern the world. It's not beyond our understanding, but it what challenges us. Like, what does that mean that he creates like, we don't know that. Well, do you ever wonder why there's all those books of Chassidus? The mature one is very hard. The mature one requires a more abstract mind, a person to be, to learn more, a person. It, 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 requ- like it, requires, an, it requires an expertise in 
um, you know, Jewish philosophy and mysticism. It's not possible. The immature one is available to anybody with half a brain who looks at the sky and is like, I can't do that. Nobody can do that. God did it. That's, that's mind-blowing. So you're saying that if you study enough Hasidus, you'll understand how to create the world? You'll understand enough, not that you could do it, you understand enough about what's impressive about how it happens. I mean, like the scientists who also try to create the world using specific um, uh, gases that they knew existed. Yeah, but science... But, and, they got, and they understood in this actual reality, they thought just that, hey, yeah, the sci- a scientist a scientist dealing with a different kind of thing. They're not talking about creating reality, they're talking about manipulating things already in reality. The 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 mature one requires a person like I mean you can go through uh you know the first say six chapters of of or chapters two, three, four, and six, if you want to like reduce it, of the second section of Tanya and really understand all of the ideas there. And like as you try and like understand what goes into like just technically, conceptually, the act of creating a being that isn't God, that functions as a creation, like what goes into that process, then then your impression being impressed by God as you develop an understanding of that is a much deeper, more profound. It it's and it is true that not everybody is able to do that. Anybody who, who, who wants to can look at whatever aspect of reality that exists, whether it's the physical reality, beauty, the, the, whatever. Anything in the created world and, and, and reflect on the fact that God made this. He was able to make this. I don't know how he did it. I don't know what went into it. But this is an amazing thing and he was able to make it. He was able to create it. He was able to poof it into being. He was a, he's able to govern the world. He's able to care for all. Like, like, it, so there's a difference between about what he's able to do and being impressed by that or what he's done versus how he's doing it. And how he's doing it requires expertise and creates a more profound and deeper and lasting sense of awe. So they're in general the same idea, but more particularly there is a difference because one is being awed by what God has done and is capable of doing the other is by being awed by how he goes about doing it. And that second one requires you to be much more thoroughly engaged with what God is doing. You have to develop some kind of expertise in spiritual stuff. And that really does change your whole sense of reality when you do that. Isn't there a certain lack in that compared to your fate because now you're making a value judgment on it and you're saying, oh, because... You're yes, so cool yes, amazing yes. versus just because you're This you. is why, this is why, if, if, if you, this is why, although it's possible theoretically to try and cultivate this before you're a schet, it always collapses because what you end up becoming impressed by is, a, is, is not, you're not, con- what you end up being impressed by is the idea that he created rather than him. Right, it's the same kind of thing of saying because you're my wife, I'll be nice to you versus you're right, human Right, being. right, and it ends up objectifying. When it works the other way, it actually is enhancing, right? It actually, there's whole discussions about this in Chassidus. It's like a nice additive. Yeah, no, it is. It is. The, the, the second Chabad Rebbe writes very sharply about Chassidim who love Yiras Elokim and they don't put any work into Yiras Chet and then they come complaining that their whole connection with God comes crumbling down as they fall spiritually. And they just feel like they're on a spiritual roller coaster. It's like, yeah, because like, 
you're busy you're busy creating a god who feels satisfies your need for wonderment and then you get enthralled with that objectify him don't take him seriously sin and then fall from your spiritual station and want to complain like that's not how it works you can't really you can't have you know the year Elohim that really truly builds a connection with god that's constructive is can never be a more can never overshadow the underlying years of the Kabbalah soul because you have to take them you have to take God seriously before you're worrying about how impressive he is and isn't what is constructing though a type of love how no 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 so how is it constructing because 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 anytime you feel love you become more acutely aware of yourself and in this experience you're actually losing your sense of yourself you don't feel how important God is to you in this it's just like God asked you and so like he's kind of like erased whatever your life was about and now like he put something else there instead. It's, 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 it still has that element of him over you rather than your connection to him. But it, it, it's a much more complex experience. It has positive and negative if you want to you know, use those kind of words. Okay. Last one we're going to do very quickly and this is called Yiras Havaya. Yiras, the four letter name of God. And... Um, And this you cannot get unless you are perfectly pious and you're doing mitzvahs. And the way this basically works is, um, and you know, people can have various degrees of this, glimpses of it. But I'll give you an example. One of the Bachram came to me and he complained. I complain like wine. He's just like very frustrated because, and he's more of a he's, he's a very deep and sensitive kind of guy. Um, interesting, and he complained to me that he reached a point in his davening where he felt he couldn't keep saying the words. He couldn't keep davening because it was like, what am I supposed to say? Like, I know the words on the page. Like, what am I supposed to say? Like, 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 I have no words. I have no like. It's just like like that. It's like I don't I don't know. Like like I like and it just. In a long time, it came personal. It became it became the it became the point where the idea that he he has a place in the whole picture of God just there's no place for him anymore, and it wasn't and he wasn't complaining like now I feel offended or not. It's just like it's like. I have no, I have no, I have no way to deal with that. There's this sense of inner silence. It's a sense of like, not that you can't articulate, you can't speak, but you feel like you don't belong. Like God is real, and He's the only thing that's real. There's just no, there's no place for you, and not like, not like, oh, there's no place for me. It's just an inner sense that like. I, this is, God is real. And there's no real way to cultivate this experience. Which is why I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. This is a kind of thing that comes as a result of doing Torah and mitzvahs. A person get a glimpse or get a sense that God is the only thing that's real. And when that happens, they kind of, they lose any sense. And now, if you have that in a very powerful and intense way, um, I, I don't you, you, you. The only analogy that I've ever seen in Chassidus that's used is being in the presence of a tzaddik, feeling like they're staring into your soul. 
And it's the sense that the standard of reality has shifted so you no longer count as a real thing. Like you've become a ghost. And so you have no way of, of, of relating or, or, or grasping or even feeling. And this kind of an experience, it can come more intensely, more intensely. That's not something you cultivate through working on it. That's something that if a person has enough godliness penetrating their life through the tournaments they do, they can experience this. And this is actually, the Altar says in Tanya, not every mind can handle this. Some minds literally, when they experience this, what did I say? Their mind literally gets blown up. Like their, their, their consciousness cannot recover from that. Little glimmers of it, one thing, but a full-fledged experience of this, not every mind can actually handle this. Because the very notion that there's, basically what's being erased is the very notion that there's God and there's me, that's what's dissolving away. Not my ability to function like in awe, just that there is even this thing called me <coughs> melts away. And that is the ultimate form of Europe. And the only way to have that is not through contemplation or reflection or refining yourself. You need all of that, plus you need to love God, and then you need to do a lot of mitzvahs. And the degree to which you do all of that, you get the glimmer of the sense of like this underlying true reality where the only thing that's real is God. Why did love just come into that? Because you can't do mitzvahs as thoroughly and properly without love. So there's no way to really get this out. Now, I gave an example from a book on the yeshiva, so obviously that's a glimmer of it. It's not like the full-fledged thing. Um... So those are the five levels of fear. But if you're talking about walking around being paranoid that you might be doing something wrong, um, if that's what you mean by fear and that you're going to get punished for it, like, you know, if that's going to keep you from sinning, great, but it's not a great basis for building a connection with God. All right? If you would like further descriptions of this, there is a book. Um, so there's Tanya chapters 41, 42, and 43. Three, and there's a book called Kuntra um, Savaida in Hebrew. In English, I believe it's translated under the title Love Like Fire and Water. Chapters 2 and 3 discuss fear at great length. Yeah, that book was just referenced. Yeah. Um, who wrote it? The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe. Um, obviously, this is an oversimplification. There's a lot more details, a lot more nuance, but. Which it, part of Kuntra chapters two and three. So, anyway, I hope you become more and more afraid of God and love Him too. And um, while we're on the topic of fear, sometimes people are afraid of doing things. And they should just get over it. You might be afraid of going to Miro. How did you know? I'm so excited. You should get over it and go anyway. My wife is going. Are you, are you going? going? We see her? No, I'm not going. <laughs> Why are you not going? Um, get over it. Get over I'm it. not afraid of going. <laughs> um, because it's not really realistic for both of us to go, and she enjoys going, and I don't enjoy going. Um, 